This morning we have the privilege of uh, receiving uh, from the Schroeders um, little Lucas, their little baby, and together joining them as they dedicate Lucas to the Lord. And so it's fitting that we take some time this morning to look at the Bible and to see what the Bible has to say about God's control and God's authority and God's activity in the lives of things that are so common to us and yet so precious, namely uh, wombs and breasts and childbearing, labor and little children. And so I ask you to turn to First Samuel. It's in the Old Testament near the front of your Bible. And we're going to read together, and I'm going to just make some comments as we go through the text, and then I'm going to make a few applications at the end. And because we live in a day where many of us have not been raised in the church and have not uh, studied the Bible as much as they have in past generations, I, I want to uh, say this morning that you should think of approaching the Bible during this time each Lord's Day when we gather for worship, maybe uh, similarly to going to some sort of exercise class where uh, the whole purpose of the class is to get your muscles broken down so they're having pain so that they will then come back together and that they will be stronger. And so there's always going to be a certain amount of pain as you go to the Bible, because the Bible is God's word. It's not man's word. You know, you can go to Hallmark card stores and find all kinds of things that are written that won't cause you any pain. Um, but that's not the way the Bible is, because the Bible comes to us from God. He made us, and so we always approach it submitting to his authority. And there's always a healthy amount of him breaking us down and putting us back together in a way that the way we think and, and the way we act is changed because we have listened to our, our master, our creator, the one who made us. Um, it's very hard for you who live in a culture where all your leaders pander to you and uh, tell you how wonderful you are and how they're going to do even more to help you. And of course, they're spending your great, 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 great grandchildren's wealth to pander to you now. There's never any accounting, you know what I'm saying? It's easy for you to come to church and expect that your pastor will pander to you, too. And uh, I won't. And I won't because I don't ever find the Bible doing that. And I want us to be faithful to Scripture. And there are a few places where Scripture runs more cross-grain. And you know what I mean by cross-grain? You know, that, that if you split a log across the grain as opposed to with the grain, you, you're going to have problems. You better have a chainsaw. Um, well, there are a few places that the Bible is more cross-grained to us than when it comes to wombs and children. Uh, because, boy, I'll tell you, we just, we're controllers of our destiny. And we're the ones that decide. And this, and this text of Scripture goes entirely against that, doesn't it? So let's begin by reading. And be prepared for your muscles to be stretched and broken down so that they'll be stronger. Now, there was a certain man from Amathiam, Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim, 
And his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. Now later I'm going to talk about what a beautiful marriage Hannah and Elkanah had. But let's start out by acknowledging that uh, this man, Elkanah, is a polygamist. He has more than one wife, and therefore he is living contrary to God's plan. It tells us in Genesis, and it tells Jesus reiterates it in the New Testament, that the two shall become one, not three. Now, you may say that, you know, there is a certain sense in which they become three when they have a child. Um, But you know what I'm saying, that it's God's plan from the beginning that one man, one woman will commit themselves to each other for life. And you go in the Old Testament to the times of the judges in Samuel uh, and prior to then, and you'll find that there is a great deal of wickedness. Um, We think we've invented wickedness, but we haven't. And in the Old Testament, it's very, very common for men, even men who were godly, to have one or two or three or four wives in addition to their first wife. And uh, in the case of Solomon, that man of great wisdom, hundreds and hundreds. And so we must acknowledge that there is no such thing as a perfect husband. And the things you have to suffer with your husband, just ask yourself, what about Hannah? You know, she had a competitor, and we'll see the nature of her competitor pretty soon. But uh, when you have uh, an inclination later in the text to look at Elkanah and to say, if only I had a husband like that, you remember he has two wives. All right? So let's keep going. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah and the name of the other Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, why do you think they did or didn't have children? Do you think it was because um, they were using birth control? They'd taken control of their destiny. Their husband had a plan for financial independence, and that plan required them to go without children for a certain number of years, right? Why do you think they didn't have children? Well, if we keep going, we'll see. Now, this man would go up, verse 3, from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. So, Penina had children, and he was a faithful husband. He provided for her and for her children, but Hannah had no children. And so here is this man looking at his wife, his two wives, and caring for and providing for for Penina and for her sons and her daughters. But he provides for Hannah also by giving her a double portion. And then it says, for he loved Hannah. So this man knew the grief of this woman, that she didn't have children. And he gave her a double portion because of his love for her. Now, right at this point, I can imagine, you know, many of us being um, offended at this, that you would have this man... Uh, so obviously uh, being unfair in his, in his family life. But, you know, God gives many of us double portions. I think as, as I listen to our musicians lead us in worship, 
of the double portion of musical gifts so many in you, of you in this congregation have been given. You've just been given beautiful musical gifts. Um, and what a wonderful thing to be given. And I, you know, you know this. There are many of us that have been given absolutely no musical gifts. I mean, none. And God is not a God who follows our notions of what is fair as Americans. Uh, you know, we think that being fair means absolutely everybody gets absolutely the same amount of everything. Scrupulous. But some of us are ugly. Some of us are pretty and handsome. Some of us are fat. Some of us are thin. Some of us are strong. Some are weak. Some are depressed. Some are cheerful. Some are musicians. Some aren't. And uh, even Jesus himself, when he was spending three years with his disciples, he had some disciples who became apostles. And even among the apostles, he had a, one disciple particularly that is referred to as the one that he loved. And that was John. And so it is natural that our hearts give issue in specific actions. And we see that because of his special love, special love for this woman, Hannah, his wife, that he gave her a double portion for he loved her. And then we, of course, hit the completely politically incorrect statement at the end of that verse. But the Lord had closed her womb. Ain't that sweet? And of course, you know me now. And you know I'm not going to pass over that. Because we're so convinced that we control our wombs. (laughs) Man, my womb belongs to me. My body, myself. And I'll do with it as I please. And pastor... Pastor, shut up. (laughs) I hear you. Or if we're men, I have no desire to be married. I have no desire to have children. I don't have any desire to have children now, and I'm going to control my destiny. Pastor, shut up. A little more aggressive from the man, you know. The Bible says what? The Lord had closed her womb. I think many of us would be tempted to think that because she wanted children and didn't have them, that's why the Bible says that the Lord had closed her womb. You know, if she didn't want children and wasn't having them, then it wasn't God there. She was controlling her destiny. You know what I'm saying? But because it says that she wanted children and didn't have them, well, it must have been the Lord that closed her womb. But then I don't think we'd really like that either because we don't want God to be in control of things that cause people to suffer, do we? So really, if we could, we would remove God's authority and power from this entire story. This woman is in grief. This woman is in tears. This woman won't eat because she doesn't have a child. And the Bible says that it was God that closed her womb. You know, I'm convinced that one of the ways that God disciplines us is by causing us to believe that we're masters of our own fate. 
I think God does often cause us to not understand our own actions. You know what I'm saying? Well, what I'm saying here is you ask many of us, you know, why we don't have children. And we'll say, well, because we don't want children. And so is God no longer in the business of closing wombs? You know, if you look at the scientific method and you look at the way people understand thunder and lightning today as opposed to a couple of centuries ago, a couple of centuries ago, uh, they would speak of thunder being God's voice. But today we understand it scientifically and so we remove the agency of God. Does this make sense to you? And so when it comes to a womb being closed and, and there being no fertility in a marriage and no babies, we say, well, that's because the couple's using birth control. And so God isn't involved there. God set it up so birth control will work in a scientific way. And so God is a God of order and God has created a way that we can not have children. But that's the limit of God's agency there. In other words... If we understand how something happens and that it's scientifically predictable, we believe that it's simply natural and that God's agency isn't there. So what is left in this world that we don't explain scientifically? What is there left? You know, the chair you're sitting on, can you describe that scientifically? How it was manufactured? What... It's made of uh, what its longevity will probably be, how much weight it can sustain, things like that. So obviously the chair is not God, right? And so then you go into, well, what about like, for instance, if a child is born with a defective heart and needs open heart surgery, is God involved in that? Well, it's just a genetic problem. It was a malformation, but we can fix it. And so we might pray that God's will give wisdom and skill to the doctor and the surgeon when he operates. Because it seems pious to pray that, you understand? But really what we need is a good doctor. Right? Right? And so we move through life, and, and maybe when it comes to marrying a woman, and it's so much romance, and romance is so cosmic, you know? It's, it's so, like, romantic, you know? And it's like heart stuff. And especially for men, you know, we don't really get heart stuff, you know. And so when it comes to romance, you know, God's involved there because it's feelings. And what are you going to do with feelings, you know? It must be God, you know. And then when a baby's born, well, of course God's involved there. I mean, every baby is a miracle, right? You know, think really, where is God's agency in your life? Where is it? Is it in those places that you don't think you control? And then he's, he's not an agent and not in control of the things you think you control? Have you ever thought about the fact that the Western world, having given herself over completely to artificial birth control, then ends up being the time in history when 50 to 60 million unborn children are killed in their mother's wombs every year around the world. Where do you think God's agency is in that? Is God just not involved because after all, we make the decision to kill our unborn children? 
you say, well, God is not a God of evil. God doesn't do evil. I say, doesn't the Bible say that God gives men over to their own desires? You say, but that doesn't make him the agent. You know, the truth is, every single one of us, anything that we've ever done that's righteous is because God has been merciful to us and allowed us to do a righteous thing. I, if, if you ask me personally where I see the hand of God in my life most, I would give you two things. Number one, the wife I've been given, and number two, the children I've been given. And I would say, I know I had nothing to do with that. I mean, I think of you, David. You know, you were doing everything you could to lose her. You know what I'm saying? And then God gave you this wonderful gift. (laughs) I remember reading in the book of Proverbs where it says, Houses and land are an inheritance from your parents. But a prudent wife is a gift from God. And I read that and I thought, yep, I was a young buck and I was completely attracted to Mary Lee Taylor. Attracted, if you receive my meaning. And then I woke up and I had a prudent wife. I didn't even know I needed a prudent wife. I just thought I needed an attractive one. Now I know none of you are... I mean, that wasn't true of any of you, right? And then... I prayed that God would give me godly children. I was scared out of my wits as a father. If I were to tell you one story in particular about our oldest child when she was young, you would know how wicked Mary Lee and I used to be. And we still are wicked, but God is changing us by his grace. And he used Heather, our oldest child, to change us. And I look back on those days and I think what we were and how ignorant and how willful and stubborn and selfish. I still am selfish. But I mean back then. And God was so merciful to us and he gave us a desire for godliness on the part of our oldest child. And I look at how our children, each of them has had hearts tender before the Lord. You know, and I stand up in front of you and you look at me and you say, well, there the pastor is, you know, preening in front of all of us. I say, not on your life. God gave me my wife. God gave me children. God gave me children that love him. And you know something? When children are not given and when godliness is not given, God is not absent from that. It's simply that there are certain graces that God does not dispense with to certain people. You have to recognize this when you look across history and you see so many people in so many different ages of the world who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. And you either say, well, God's not powerful enough to send missionaries everywhere and he couldn't have done it. Or you say, God is sovereign. And it's very interesting. God is an authority. We go through this and we hit this verse and it says, The Lord had closed her womb. I want you to understand. It means what it says. God had closed her womb. And when the entire Western Europe is no longer reproducing itself, who do you think is closing the wombs of the Western world today? 
Do you think God is not involved in that? Sure, there are means, but God is in control of this universe. Rabbi Kushner is wrong. Rabbi Kushner tells you that, you know, God wishes he could, but he can't. And I say, what kind of a God is a God that can't? That's not a word that I think of with respect to God. He, he just can't. You know? It's like, oh, yes, he can. <laughs> because that's the definition of God. Oh, yes, he can. All right, I'll move off it. Give you some relief. Verse 6, her rival, Hannah's rival, Penina. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Now, again, we don't understand this, do we? <laughs> you know, rivals? Rivals? You know, none of you have ever had a brother and sister, right? Sometimes David Carell is driven to distraction when he has to work with both my brother and me. Why? Well... There is a certain sibling rivalry between David and me. I just got another car. And I remembered after I got it that David had called me a couple of months ago and told me that he had this wonderful car. And he was so excited about it. And I've just realized that it may be wise the next time I go see David not to drive my car up there, but to let him show me his car. Before I show them mine. Now, none of you have relationships with brothers and sisters like that, right? So here's Penina and Hannah. And Penina torments Hannah. She has children. Isn't that enough? You know? Chill out, woman. You got the children. But no. Now, how do you explain that? You have to explain that it's sin, don't you? It's evil. And that's who you are. You really are like that. You really don't rejoice when somebody else excels. That's who you are. Penina's not some monster. You know? Who was it? It was like Truman Capote or somebody who said, um, you know, there's something in me that dies every time one of my friends is successful. <laughs> all right, all right. So here we come, and it says her rival would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. You can just imagine every morning she goes across the front of wherever Hannah lives, and she's got her babies, and she's, you know, parades them in front every time. And she does it because that's where the well is. She has to walk in front of the house. She couldn't go behind. No, she does it, it says, specifically so that she will irritate her. Do you think that God doesn't know your heart? God knows your heart. And God is merciful to sinners. He's merciful to sinners. I admit, there are times when I have wanted to irritate. At, at Thanksgiving this year, I'm upstairs in my room. I come downstairs and my son, Joseph, is playing a video game. And... Uh, He's on the phone with Lucas, so I start badgering him. Hey, Joseph. Hey, Joseph. Hey, you're ugly. You know, and uh, Joseph is so irritated. Joseph never gets irritated. Never, ever, ever. 
But Joseph is so irritated, he says to, he's rude to Lucas, and he says, I have to hang up. And bam, he hangs up on Lucas. So Lucas gets kicked because I'm kicking Joseph. <laughs> you know. Now, the good part of the story is I said to Joseph a day or two later, I said, hey, Joseph, you know, I'm perverse, and I show affection by irritating people. You know, I was just trying to tell you I loved you, and I have a twisted way of doing it, you know. And he said, yeah, but he said, actually, I was getting beat in the video game by Taylor, and that's why I was really irritated. (laughs) She did it to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year as often as she went up to the house of the Lord. She would provoke her, so she wept and would not eat. Think about that. This is one malicious woman, isn't it? But she's just like me and she's just like you. She's irritating her and provoking her. And so Hannah, the sweet woman, is not eating. And now we see the beauty. Verse 8, Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat and why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Have you ever heard the expression in a court of law that a defense attorney should never, or a prosecuting attorney, neither one should ever ask a question they don't know the answer to? Well, he is not asking her whether he's better than ten sons. He's telling her. And he knows she won't object to that, doesn't he? You never say something like that to your wife unless you have a good relationship with her. (laughs) Aren't I better to you than ten children? Well, as a matter of fact, sweetheart, no. In other words, this is a beautiful marriage. It is beautiful. It's not perfect. He has two wives. But it is beautiful. He knows that he owns her heart and she owns his. And he's pleading with her to rejoice in what God has given her and not to focus on what she doesn't have. But she is unable to be consoled. She is unable to be consoled. She wept and would not eat. Verse 9, Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, Hannah, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and a razor shall never come on his head. Now let me ask you, why was it an affliction for her not to have children? Do you know why? Because Hannah was a woman. She was a woman. And she knew that the most precious gift that God had given her as a woman was her womb. And that there would be no joy that she could present to her husband, let alone experience herself, that would ever compare to being great with child, being able to nurse a child, and being able to instruct and discipline a child. And knowing that that child would be the fruit of her labors. I read an author called Joe Sobrin all the time, and he's very fond of quoting some Frenchman whose name I cannot remember. And I'm not going to get the quote exactly right. But he says, The modern world delights in sacrificing the normal to the abnormal. 
And this is very true when it comes to the issue of the womb and of femininity. We're so concerned about those marriages that are childless, where they want children, and those marriages where they are loveless, and those marriages where uh, they didn't happen until they were 45, and so they were beyond childbearing years, and those women who are single, that we never, ever recognize what is God's plan. We're so busy making sure that we don't hurt anyone's feelings who might be in grief over being childless that we don't say that having children is a blessing. Do you understand this? And the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible just assumes that we all understand that for her to be childless is a terrible tragedy. And it doesn't explain why she's in grief. It just simply tells her she's childless. She's in grief. Why? Because this is a woman who's given herself to femininity. She understands her womb. She understands marriage. She understands children as God intended it. And she doesn't allow the single people around her and the women that don't have husbands to cause her to fall off the truth. Do you understand that? There are griefs that every single one of you have. And if we allow each other's grief to keep us from acknowledging the truth of what is normal from God as He ordered this world, we just become completely twisted. We become the exception. And the exception is the only thing we know. How do you explain in our country the growing illegitimacy rate? How do you explain the abortion rate? How do you explain the divorce rate? Well, it's because every pastor and every judge and every op-ed columnist and every professor is so set on the twisted and the abnormal that we have not lifted up and honored the normal and the blessings. And it's just completely wrong. Why do pastors not preach against couples making a decision that they will never have children? Well, because they don't want to hurt the couples that are childless because they are not able to have children. They don't want to hurt the single people who don't have a choice of having children. Why do pastors not preach against divorce? Well, it's because you don't want to hurt the woman that is divorced without her will. I mean, she doesn't need to be reminded of how terrible a divorce is. And yet, isn't it the Bible itself that says that God hates divorce? So how could you be a biblical pastor and not preach against divorce? How do you do it? You know, how can I be a biblical pastor and not open up the text that says God closed her womb? You want me to jump right over it, right? Because it's kind of negative for us to hear that, you know, children are a blessing. That's negative. How twisted are we? We sacrifice the normal to the abnormal. That's a mark of the modern world. She's in grief because she doesn't have a child. It's very interesting. Some of you know who Matthew Henry is, right? You know who Matthew Henry is. He's a, an old Puritan who wrote a commentary on all of Scripture. And if you were to just have one book that you were to use devotionally as you read the Bible, Matthew Henry would be far and away the one most recommended. Spurgeon would recommend him. Everybody would recommend him. What application do you think that Matthew Henry makes in this text in his time? You'll never guess it. Matthew Henry 
makes the comment, since she waited, well, I'll wait until I get there and then I'll tell you what Matthew Henry says. Okay. She made a vow. She said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and a razor shall never come on his head. This means that she will make him a Nazarite. It was an order of people back at the time who never cut their hair, who lived a life of absolute um, simplicity. Uh, Samson was a Nazarite. So was John the Baptist. You remember what the Bible says about John the Baptist. And so what she's saying is, I will dedicate this child to you. He will belong to you. He will not belong to me. All right? That's why a razor will not cut, touch his hair. Verse 12, Now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart. Only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. In the ancient world, it was not common to, um, to read or to pray without making noise. It was just... It was something that was generally not done. You know, we do things, we read silently all the time. We pray silently. Uh, so he thought she was drunk, verse 13. Then Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, No, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. We're so focused on people making a decision that they're not going to have children that... When a couple has children, we will not even ask them whether they don't have children because their womb is shut and are they oppressed in spirit. The Bible tells us to mourn with those who mourn and to rejoice with those who rejoice. We're so fixated on people making a decision not to have children that we won't even ask them whether it's their choice. How can you mourn with somebody who's not able to have children and is married? If you don't even know whether it's a choice or whether God has closed her womb. You know? In other words, when she says, I'm oppressed in spirit, she's saying, this is not a choice. This is God closing my womb and I can't bear it. I can't bear it. Do not consider your maidservant, verse 16, a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. She's oppressed in spirit and she's provoked. And then Eli answered and said, Go in peace and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. Is she a woman of faith? It's very clear from it talking about her eating and her face cheering up that she believes that she's going to get a son. Did I say a son? The Bible's so politically incorrect. Can't the Bible translators change that to a child? Well, keep reading. Then they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. It came about in due time, having relations means that they were intimate. It came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son. And she named him Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. Then the man Elkanah went out with, up with all his household to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. And so what we have here is a man who observed the biblical commands to attend worship. 
male Israelites were required to go up to the temple three times a year. And we see that he was in the habit of going up, but also taking uh, his family with him. So the time came for him to go up to the temple and to worship. And it says, but Hannah did not go up for she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned. Then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. Okay, now I'll give you a hint. This is the verse where Matthew Henry makes an application. Now, what do you think the application is? You want me to read it to you? Here's the application. The close attention Hannah gave to the nursing of Samuel was not only because Samuel was dear to her, but because he was devoted to God And for God, she nursed her son herself and did not hang him on another's breast. What's that about? How would you hang your son on another's breast? Well, go back and learn. Jeremy Taylor, the great Anglican divine, has an essay on the duty of mothers to nurse their own children. It's very, very common to have wet nurses. You know what the mortality rate was of children who were put out under wet nurses given to another woman? It was huge. Now, why would woman, women not nurse their own children? Why? Some of you can't conceive of that. You've, you know, you've been to Leche classes, consultants, you know. Why would a woman ever not nurse her own children? And furthermore, why is a male pastor talking about this, you know? <laughs> Well, you know why? First of all, nursing is very time-consuming and happens at very inconvenient times. And second, nursing has a way of taking what's supposed to be a symbol of eroticism and making it a very, very common and and, and utilitarian vessel. (laughs) And then... When you're done nursing, you're not the same body, are you? At every point, what do we do? We sacrifice the normal to the abnormal. God gave us the breast as an instrument of mercy and food to our children. And then we hire poor women to do it for us. And you say, well, we don't do that anymore. And I say, well, if I have to go deeper into this application, you're brain dead. I mean, there are some places I won't go. Just a few. But I mean, think of the application of this. Matthew Henry says, women, nurse your own children. And then he says this, we ought to take care of our children, not only with an eye to the law of nature as they are ours, but with an eye to the covenant of grace as they're given up to God. This sanctifies the nursing of it when it's done is unto the Lord. Did you ever think of nursing your child as a gift to God? So she is nursing her own child and she says, I won't go up until he's weaned. Then Alcana, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. She has made a covenant that she's going to give her child to the Lord. That he will be a Nazarite 
Now she is saying that when the child is weaned, she'll take the child up to the temple and not keep the child. How does a mother do that? How does a mother do that? Probably around three years of age. How does a mother do that? How does a mother take this child she had waited so many years for and say that when he is weaned, she will give him to God and will not have him anymore? How does a mother do that? Huh? I mean, it has to be that she loves God and is so grateful that she's willing to give the most precious thing she has in her life. You know? How much do you love God? Would you give him your child? Would you give him your wife, your husband, your mom? Another interesting thing. Hannah loved Elkanah, or excuse me, Elkanah loved Hannah so much that he went along with her vow. She could not have made these vows without his agreement. It's very clear in the Old Testament that a wife cannot make a vow that her husband disagrees with. If her husband refuses to allow the vow, it's done. She can't make a vow. Go back in Numbers and read about it. So both Elkanah and Hannah are in agreement that this child will be given up. Do what seems best to you, verse 23, Elkanah said to Hannah. Remain until you've weaned him, only may the Lord confirm his word. And so the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. When do you think she weaned him? I think it was when he was 27 years old. (laughs) Okay. Now, when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, with a three-year-old bull and one ephah of flour and a jug of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was young. You think if you took the one child God had blessed you with after waiting for it for years, that you would go ahead and take flour and grain and, and, and a bowl? Don't you think that the child was enough? This is a godly woman. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. For this boy I prepared. doesn't say this child. You look. She wanted a boy. She wanted a son. Was that godliness or was she just sexist? And was it just her husband's oppression? For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition, which I ask of him. So I have also dedicated him to the Lord as long as he lives. He's dedicated to the Lord. And he, referring to Samuel, worshipped the Lord there. Matthew Henry says that he believes that Samuel was very precocious spiritually, and that from a very young age his heart belonged to God and he worshipped God. (laughs) You know, we won't let people join or be baptized until they're what? 17, 23, 30, until they've really proven their faith. Right? Samuel worshiped the Lord there. We have Hannah's prayer, but I want you to note a couple of things. If you'll flip over um, to verse 18 of chapter 2, if you have a Bible, I'll read it if you don't have a Bible. Now, Samuel was ministering before the Lord as a boy wearing a linen ephod, and his mother would take him a little robe and bring it to him from year to year when she would come up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. What a beautiful little picture. Every year when she came up to the temple, she had made a little suit of clothing for him, and she'd give it to him, and then she'd walk home without her child. And this was her gift to God. I want you to notice something else. Look at verse 12 of chapter 2. Who did Hannah leave 
Samuel with Eli. What was Eli like? Look at verse 12. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. And the custom of the priests with the people, when any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest meat for roasting, as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. If the man said to him, They must surely burn the fat first, and then take as much as you desire, then he would say, No, but you shall give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. What they were essentially doing is, if I were to go to the offering plates right now, and I would take my hand, put it in the offering plate, and pull out the offering that you have given to God, and I were to take it to myself. That's what they were doing. The fat belongs to whom? To the Lord. All right. And what they did is they took the fat to themselves. They violated the gifts of God's people to God. They violated them. Now, that's bad. But then if you flip over, you will see in verse 22, Eli was very old and he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. These sons were stealing from the offerings to the Lord what belonged to the Lord. And they were taking the women that served at the temple to bed. Now, why am I bringing this up? Because it makes so precious the gift of this woman, Hannah, of her son to Eli. Would you want your children left with Eli? These are his sons. You want your son growing up in that environment? No. So what was she, a fool? No. She was a woman of faith. She had prayed for this child. The Lord had given her, and now she would pray for this child. And the Lord would make Samuel into a great warrior for God. She knew she could protect. That child would be protected by God. Now, what are a couple of applications before we dedicate Lucas? Please try to bring your hearts and your marriages and your minds into conformity with what Scripture says, that children are a blessing from the Lord. Give your marriage, give your wife's womb over to God. Don't look at children as a pain. Look at them as a blessing. This is what Scripture says they are. Children are a blessing of the Lord. Women don't think that you have something more important to do with your life. You say, oh, now he's patronizing us. I'm not patronizing you. I've watched people for 52 years now. And I can tell you, when my dad was ready to die and he was known across the country nationally, he spoke nationally, he wrote, he had books. And my dad, as he was getting ready to die, he said, the only thing that I really, really am happy I've done with my life is to have children. 
Now, he didn't mean it totally that way, but what he was saying is, what did he take joy in? And I'm telling you, I was not such a nice son. And yet he still took joy in me. It's this amazing thing. God takes joy in sinful children. That's what we all are. Our, our parents take joy in us. Number two, if you have a burden, who do you take it to? Do you take it to your best friend? Do you take it to your husband or your wife? Well, yes, but who do you take it to? You take it to God. And clearly, Hannah knew who could solve her problem. And she believed that God was capable of giving her a child, and she took it to the Lord. Do you pray? Take your troubles to the Lord. You know, what a friend we have in Jesus. And then finally, your children that God has given you, those of you who are normal and have been married and have children, do they belong to God or do they belong to you? Hmm? Do you bring them to church every single week? Do you take them to their Bible clubs? Do you take them before the throne of grace in prayer? Do you have devotions with them? Do you pray with them and for them? And then as they're older, are you willing for them to become Aka Indian martyrs? Are you willing for them to die for the Lord? Are you willing for them to be dedicated to the Lord? You know, if we're honest, we have to admit that one of the most cataclysmic events that happens in the life of a man and a woman is the birth of a child. And whether you believe in infant baptism or in dedication or you don't believe in either, I think it's absolutely fitting that every single time a child is born in this church, we do what we're going to do now with the Schroeders, which is we realize how vulnerable that child is. And we pray, God, that that child will not grow up to be the sons of Eli. And we say to God, God, this is your gift to me. And I give him back to you. And I ask you, take him and make him into a man. Make her into a woman of God. I'm going to ask Nick and Therese and their family and friends to come up now, please.